You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 51. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Today on the show, I want to go back to our friend Friedrich Nietzsche. Specifically, thus spoke Zarathustra, something that he wrote toward the end of his life. The past two months, as you've probably noted, since I'm constantly quoting from him and discussing him on the midweek debrief, for me, Friedrich Nietzsche is someone I rediscovered recently. As I've noted before, I read him in college but didn't understand him. Not that I understand him now, but I think that maturity, experience, time has seasoned me to the extent that I can at least read and appreciate Nietzsche. As Jordan Peterson says, reading Nietzsche, well, first of all, you don't read Nietzsche. Nietzsche doesn't write books, he drops bombs. And when you read Beyond Good and Evil, every sentence is a thought. Every sentence is a bomb, it's an explosion. It blows up your presuppositions, your opinions, your assumptions and beliefs about reality, about yourself, about society. Nietzsche is a one in a billion intellect probably the greatest intellect of his generation, perhaps even the 19th century. But in the present tense, the reason I believe he's so relevant and should be read or at least paid attention to is because he is the medicine to cure or at least treat the sickness of wokeness, of leftism, of neo-Marxism that has captivated the popular imagination in politics entertainment, even sports, but especially amongst a certain sector of society in the West in particular. And all of this manifests itself after a very long history, a very long intellectual history that we don't need to do a deep dive into on this podcast, but it goes all the way back to a man named George Hegel, who was an Enlightenment philosopher and professor. He was extremely popular in his day, extremely influential, not only in his generation, but thereafter. And his influence can be felt in Gramsci, who was a very famous, very popular Italian Marxist in the early 20th century, and specifically in Herbert Marcuse, who was a critical social theorist, came out of the Frankfurt School in Germany during the Second World War. He fled Germany. He was Jewish, so he fled to the West, became kind of a rock star in the academic world. And in 1965, he wrote an essay entitled oppressive or repressive tolerance. And this essay, Repressive Tolerance, has become the functioning logic for leftism, wokeism, neo-Marxism in the present tense. If you read Herbert Marcuse's 1965 essay, Repressive Tolerance, you will literally read a roadmap. In fact, you will read things in that essay that you swear people are quoting directly from the essay when they speak. All of that is to say then that Nietzsche is a purgative to this Hegelian, Gramscian, Marcusean ideology of wokeness, of of leftism. Because Nietzsche was extremely antagonistic toward collectivism and the dissolution or the dissolving of the individual man in particular. And so I thought today to to dive deep into something that Nietzsche writes about in Thus Spoke Zarathustra that is applicable to 
the theme or thesis of my podcast about the warrior mindset or the warrior spirit, we dive into his distinction between the last man and the ubermensch. You can actually watch this play out. In, if you don't want to read Nietzsche or you just don't have the time, for example, to engage with Nietzsche, you can watch Fight Club, the movie Fight Club by David Fincher starring Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. That is a meditation, as I've talked about on this podcast. Fight Club, the book Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk, it's a meditation on thus spoke Zarathustra. Brad Pitt is the ubermensch, and Edward Norton's character is the last man. So even if you don't want to read Nietzsche, just go watch the movie. One, it's a great movie, and David Fincher is a phenomenal uh, movie storyteller. But also it'll help you just understand the basic concepts of Nietzsche's philosophy and thus spoke Zarathustra. And you can be entertained while you do it. And then think about when Fight Club was made. Think about when Polinick wrote it. And then compare the themes and the ideology of Fight Club in the present tense. Could that movie even be made in the present tense? And I think then you'll begin to grasp what exactly the conceit of that movie, the conceit of the book, and therefore the conceit of what Nietzsche is talking about in The Spoke Zarathustra is about and why it matters. I think why it's so relevant and vital today for those of us who value individuality and not just any kind of individuality, not just leave me alone to live my life, but a specific kind of individuality that I want to discuss today. So let's dive into this. For Nietzsche in The Spoke Zarathustra, there are two principal kinds of people, the last man, as he calls them, and the ubermensch, the superman or uber-overman. Now, before I get too deep, I also need to add a footnote here. The use of Nietzsche by the Nazis was a perverted view of Nietzsche, a perverted reading of Nietzsche. It was distorted. So much of what is considered the philosophy of the Ubermensch in Nietzsche that comes to us in the present tense has been filtered through the lens of the Nazi machine, the Nazi propaganda machine that took Nietzsche and others like Goethe and Martin Luther and other German heroes and spun them up to support this Nazi myth of the Teutonic peoples of the Aryan race. So I think this is very important also is that in the present tense, bad historians and dumb literature teachers and philosophy professors will read Nietzsche through the lens of Nazi propaganda and I think teach and present a distorted, perverted interpretation, hermeneutic of Nietzsche on the matter of the Ubermensch, which I hope also to kind of clarify for you today. So you have the last man, you have the Ubermensch. And these are, these are archetypes. These are basically two concepts that form human identities. There's two types of people, the last men and the Ubermensch. So the last man, how do we describe the last man? Well, the last man, he sees life's purpose is all about pleasure and about indulging cravings. What do you desire? What gives you pleasure? What, what, what fulfills you? What makes you feel good? You need to indulge that because that is the actual goal and purpose of life is to indulge in pleasures. And it doesn't matter what the quality of the thing is that you're indulging. It doesn't matter how valuable or invaluable your cravings are. That doesn't matter. It's not about quality. It's about eliminating pain and suffering. The entire purpose of the last man 
for Nietzsche is in pursuit of fulfilling and indulging pleasures for the sole purpose of escaping, having to suffer and endure pain. But for Nietzsche, this path, this life goal, these choices lead to degeneracy. They lead to a dehumanization of the individual. And so what happens then for the last man, or when it's a whole bunch of last men, a collective, they're participating and affirming each other as they pursue this path of decay, degradation, degeneracy, dehumanization of each other. And what is truly tragic then is that they're comfortable doing this. They're really comfortable doing this. In fact, they think that they're morally good for pursuing this path. So then what ends up happening is that anybody who comes and says to them, hey, I I think I need to offer you a corrective. You're on a path of destruction here. This is self-destructive. The purpose of life is actually not to escape suffering and eliminate pain. In fact, attempting to escape suffering, attempting to eliminate pain actually results in creating more pain, pouring more pain on yourself, more hurt, more heartache, more self-inflicted damage. Because the more you indulge in pleasure, the more you hurt yourself because you dehumanize yourself. You're actually helping yourself decay. And that, as a consequence, is causing you pain. You think about someone who sits on the couch and eats eats Doritos and watches Netflix and doesn't exercise, doesn't socialize, doesn't engage with other people in any meaningful way. What's going to happen to them physically and mentally and emotionally over time? They're going to degrade. They're going to degenerate. And then they're going to have type 2 diabetes. They're going to have heart disease. They're going to have cancer. They're going to have all of these medical and intellectual conditions, mental conditions, which require them to endure even more pain and even more suffering as a consequence of their choices. And those choices are all directed in one direction. They're all focused on one thing, which is indulging my cravings, satisfying my cravings in the hope, the false belief that this will actually make me happy. It'll make me comfortable. So then someone comes along and offers a corrective and says, actually, exercise is the key. Getting a good night's sleep is the key. Eating good, healthy, nutrient-rich food is the key. Socializing with people that are encouraging and motivating and build you up and challenge you to aspire to something better than yourself, greater than yourself, that's actually the purpose and goal of life. And a lot of that, by the way, is on the other side of pain and suffering. That person or those people will then be seen as insane by the last men. They will be considered only fit for the madhouse, as Nietzsche writes. So now think about social media. Think about society in the United States today. Think about fat shaming and the subculture of fat shaming, that being fat is healthy. There was a recent article written that argued that being fat or obese might actually help someone resist getting COVID-19. Think about that. Being unhealthy will help you become healthy. That's the double think. That's the double speak of Orwell's 1984. And so someone stands up and says, well, actually, as someone who has a lot of experience, who might even be trained or might even have a degree in health and nutrition, being morbidly obese is extremely unhealthy, not just for you, but for society who's going to have to foot the bill for your medical bills who's going to have to suffer the consequences for your disabilities, for your illnesses and diseases. It's not just affecting you, it's affecting everyone around you in a negative way. 
that person who is saying, listen, according to the hard science, this is a fact. Morbid obesity is extremely unhealthy and leads to all kinds of diseases and illnesses and afflictions. The best thing you can do is exercise and get strong. The best thing you can do is eat the right kinds of foods, nutrient-dense foods, healthy foods. Put away the sugar. Throw it out. Throw out the processed carbohydrates. Throw out the food that comes in a box or a bag that you can microwave in five minutes or less. Stop staying up till two or three in the morning and then waking up in the middle of the morning or at noon. Stop behaving in such a way that you get winded walking upstairs. Stop hanging out with people that actually keep you stuck in this cycle of self-afflicted decay and degeneration. That person who says that, I'm one of them, maybe you are too, we're actually seen as insane. We're seen as fat shamers. We're seen as morally evil for saying these things. We're fit for the madhouse. We should be institutionalized. So then the ubermensch, the overman, so to speak, uber, over, superman, he sees life the exact opposite way as the last man. So actually the ubermensch, he doesn't actually care about happiness in the strictest, narrowest sense because happiness is highly subjective. I am sure that what makes me happy doesn't necessarily make you happy. The things that I do, the foods that I eat, how I live my life, the choices that I make, they make me happy. But that doesn't mean they make you happy. And just because something makes me happy, that doesn't mean it's actually good for me. In fact, as a drug addict and alcoholic, a lot of stuff that used to make me happy actually was ruining my life. It ruined my life. It almost killed me. And so in a sense then, the Ubermensch sees the last man's life as an artificial construct. It's something that the last man or this collection of last men, they've all kind of agreed. They, they form the social contract that they're going to ignore reality and only follow their perceptions of reality. And their perceptions, their judgments of reality then determine how they indulge in pleasure, how they attempt to escape suffering and pain. Whereas for the Ubermensch, his entire life is about creation. It's about aspiring to those things that are higher above him, that are greater than himself. Like we talked about in Bushido and Christianity, the intersection between the samurai class and the Christians was they recognized in the other class, in the other, other's vocation, here is someone who has committed their life to a higher principle, a higher set of goals. And key to that is self-sacrifice and self-service. That's the Ubermensch. What I am here to do is to create. What I am here to do is to aspire to be better than I was yesterday, to pursue those goals that others would say are too lofty, too high. They are impossible. They're too difficult. You need to stop doing that because you're suffering. Doesn't that hurt? That's not normal. And the Uberman disregards that. Because the Ubermensch, the Uberman, the Ubermensch, isn't about happiness. He's not about the subjective, arbitrary whims of your emotions. He sees that for what it is. It's a lie. It's a social construct. And so you don't seek out perfection. You don't seek out any one virtue. But instead, you recognize that pursuing pleasure for the sake of pleasure 
indulging your cravings so that you can get comfortable. You can be comfortable. You can feel safe and secure. These things aren't virtues, first of all. Second of all, they don't lead to you becoming more human than human, so to speak, realizing your potential, to quote Aristotle. Instead, the Ubermensch acts in direct contrast to the last man's actions. If the last man's actions are degenerative and degrading and dehumanizing, the Ubermensch refuses to participate and partake in this kind of a lifestyle. Because quality of pleasure doesn't even register for the Ubermensch. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You think of David Goggins or a lot of things that Jocko Willing talks about and others. It's about embracing the suck, recognizing that moving through pain, moving through suffering and hardship actually makes one stronger. That's how one grows. That's how one becomes better than he was yesterday or she was the other day. And so we value life not because it leads us to more pleasure, because we can find more comfort and security. We value life because every day is a new day, a new opportunity to create something that wasn't there yesterday, to aspire to something that we didn't reach yesterday. And so even though the Ubermensch and the last man have opposite views on what life is about, what the meaning of life is, what their identity is, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're on opposite sides of the street. Because the opposite of the Ubermensch, or the Overman, the Superman, is actually the Untermensch, which isn't in Nietzsche's philosophy, but others who have commentated on Nietzsche have brought this term up. Untermensch is the Underman. Ubermensch, Overman, Uber, Over. Unter, Underman. And the Untermensch, he is or she is a person who is unable to take on the program to follow the trajectory of the Ubermensch. This is a person who has not achieved manhood on the male side of the house. This is a person who is physically disadvantaged in relation to the Ubermensch. And therefore, what the Untermensch, the underman, does we would call them beta males in the present tense. The beta male, the untermensch, does what he can to drag down the ubermensch. It doesn't matter whether he is conscious of what he is doing or not. It's implicit in everything that he does. Because the untermensch does not like being reminded that he has not achieved manhood. He does not want to be reminded that he is a man-child. He's a beta. And so when he sees the ubermensch, he must tear him down. He must reduce him in size because the ubermensch, the overman, the man who has achieved manhood, is like a mirror that reminds the untermensch that he is not who he is made to be. He is not creative. He does not aspire to anything above himself. In fact, whatever he sees above himself, he tears down. He destroys because he does not want to be reminded that he has no aspirations other than to satisfy and indulge his cravings and his desires. And as a consequence, he is physically, emotionally, and mentally disadvantaged. So if he sees a, a man who is more intelligent than him, he will tear that man down and make him appear stupid and mock him and ridicule him and curse him. If he sees a man who is physically stronger than him, 
he will attempt to tear him down, mock him, ridicule him, vilify him, declare him a madman, mentally ill, a villain. Because the Untermensch is just that. He's an under-man. He is less than a man. But he is comfortable with this because he is in the chains of a slave's morality. He is a slave to a certain kind of morality. And this morality infects others. It's contagious. Because what this slave morality teaches others is that being an ubermensch is actually bad for you. It's unhealthy, mentally unhealthy, socially unhealthy. And that only people who are insane, who are mentally ill, who are parts of particular groups, villainous groups, sectarian, extremist groups, would want to be an ubermensch. And this goes back to what I said about the misinterpretation of this word and the philosophy behind it in Thus Spoke Zarathustra by the Nazis, and then the misinterpretation of Nietzsche in the present tense by academics in particular who read him through the lens of Nazi propaganda. These professors who do that, they are the Untermensch. They are enslaved to this particular kind of Untermensch morality. And they infect their students with it. They infect others with it by discouraging people to achieve manhood, to achieve womanhood, to become less than human. In fact, the Übermensch to them is Satan, is the devil, is a demon. Think about the gym owners who have been vilified during the lockdowns the past year. Think about all the healthy people who have been gaslit because they have strong immune systems and they are mentally healthy and strong. Who are the most vilified and attacked in our society? Those who are healthy, those who are strong, those who can think for themselves, who are knowledgeable and well-read, who can ask good, thoughtful questions, who are critical thinkers. Why are they declared devils? Why are they attacked? Because they are not a part of this slave morality. They have a different morality. Their morality is a higher morality. In fact, what's interesting to me, what's remarkable to me, is how many of these people are also devout Christians. Because, of course, as a Christian, I believe in a higher power. I believe in a God, a specific kind of God, who has taught specific things about humanity, about our purpose for being here and existing, for where we're going, what our destiny is. And that contradicts the narrative of the politicians, the celebrities, the professional athletes, all of these who propound this ideology, this slave morality. Am I a slave? In a Christian sense, yeah, I'm a slave for Christ. I serve Christ. I serve my God. I don't serve the morality of politicians or celebrity. I don't serve the morality of the untermensch, and I won't bend a knee to it or comply to it. And therefore, lest I infect others, I must be expunged. I must be cast out. I must be marginalized in order that others see me as a warning, as a morality tale, as a moral lesson. Let all the other slaves see him 
Let all the slaves look at her. See what this gets you? Ostracized, demonized, cast out. You don't want to be like them, do you? Look at how they suffer. Look at how weird they are. Look at their, look at their weird lifestyle and the decisions they make. Look at their choices. Ugh, that's so disgusting. They actually choose to put themselves through suffering and pain. Who wants to do that? Who wants to be a part of that? Look at how unsafe and unhealthy they are. They actually believe that their immune system can protect them from viruses. They actually think by eating the right foods, they don't need to get vaccinated. They actually don't believe in social distancing. They don't think masks do anything because the Center for Infectious Diseases says that they don't do anything. Don't be like those people. Listen to the ministry of truth. We won't guide you astray like they want to. That's the psychology of the Untermensch. It's slave morality. Well, in order to be a slave, you have to have a slave master. So ask, who are the masters? Overly manly characteristics then for the the slave, the Untermensch, those are evil. We call it toxic masculinity in the present tense. The Untermensch, all of his or her characteristics, those are morally good. Being a slave and, a, and, and holding to a slave's morality, for the Untermensch, that's good. That is actually the highest virtue. Be a slave. Listen to your masters. Do what they tell you. And they will make sure that you stay safe and comfortable. And so this slave morality that the Untermensch, the beta males, participate in, it's created to counter the morality of the overman, of the, of the ubermensch. Because that is the master's morality, the master morality, the highest morality, according to Nietzsche. Because the master morality, as he calls, calls it, is the belief that what is good is made up of what is beautiful and intelligent and physically able and strong. While what is bad, morally bad, is made up of what is ugly and stupid and physically handicapped. And there... You heard it, right? Now you know how the Nazis use this to justify the final solution. Those who are ugly and stupid and handicapped are bad. One line. One line is all they needed. One sentence. How do we justify killing people? Well, they're physically handicapped and therefore they're morally bad and they must be expunged from society. Which is interesting then. Of course, Nietzsche was a classist. He actually believed that the state should be run according to a class system. So he's got that knock against him, in my opinion. But I get it, because of the times in which he lived, and just who he was. But listen to this, then. So the Ubermensch has a higher morality than the slave morality of the Untermensch, the beta male. What is beautiful, intelligent, and physically able is morally good. What is bad is ugly, stupid, and physically handicapped. It's, I understand in a certain sense <clears throat> how you can get from this sentence to the final solution. I think it's pretty obvious how they use this to leverage that ideology. But on the other hand, I also recognize that if you stand for what is beautiful and intelligent and physically able and physically strong, attempting to rid the world of ugly, stupid, and physically handicapped people would make one ugly, stupid, and physically disabled because you're not 
physically engaged in what God made you for. Your physical abilities, your strength is not there so that you can prey upon those who are handicapped or weaker than you. But rather, you are physically able, you are physically strong in order to lift up those who are not able to stand up on their own. If you are intelligent, you are given your intellect in order that you might help enlighten others who are not informed or enlightened or as knowledgeable as you, and to do it in a compassionate and a kind way. Honestly, yes. Forcefully, if necessary. Urgently, absolutely. And yet, always with the intent to improve the life of the other. And if you are beautiful and you treat someone who is ugly as ugly, you yourself are hideous. Because that would be the opposite of beauty. In my opinion, if you study classical Western philosophy, beauty essentially makes everything around it beautiful. Think about when you are somewhere that you look at a flower or a sunset or you're standing on top of a bluff looking out over a valley or you're just with a group of people whom you love and you think how beautiful these people are or how beautiful this scene is and how you are in awe that you are a part of it. You are just kind of dumbstruck by the fact that you're surrounded by so many beautiful people. And I don't mean physically beautiful. No, it's not just aesthetics. Beautiful inside and out. They have a beautiful heart, beautiful mind. Maybe, yes, they're physically beautiful. But aren't they physically beautiful in some ways because of their intellect, because of how they are when they engage and interact with you? To be beautiful and intelligent and physically able, in my opinion, isn't just a matter of outward appearances, I think. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Ooh, it got dry. I think that's a failure to comprehend what Nietzsche is about here is that beauty and intelligence and physical ability, which, by the way, Nietzsche was not beautiful, not a physically appealing person, and physically he was riddled with diseases, mostly as a consequence of syphilis, which he contracted as a young man. He had lots of problems physically through his entire life. So this is even a critique of himself, that he could see himself as being morally bad according to the philosophy of Zarathustra. So I think we have to be very careful and very deliberate and thoughtful about how we read such sentences so that we don't fall into the trap that Hitler and the Nazis fell into, which was to read this aesthetically and to say, well, if you're physically handicapped, then you should be thrown into a gas chamber or shot or whatever. That's evil. And now that makes you one of the last men because what are you doing? Well, I want, I want to be comfortable and I want a society that's safe and secure. Well, how do we do that? Well, we have to get rid of all the ugly, stupid, handicapped people. That actually is dehumanizing. That is degeneracy. That's morally degrading. And so in the name of what is good, you actually make yourself the villain. You become monstrous. Versus, no, if you are beautiful or intelligent or physically able and judged to be so by others, you now have a responsibility to other people to lead the way, to lift them up. Think of David Goggins' videos when he's out running and he's talking these motivational monologues or whoever it may be, even this podcast, right? Do one more set, by the way. (laughs) You know who you are. A master moralist believes that maintaining what is good is the most important thing over and against all things that make one happy. In fact, what makes you happy which is, again, what the, the Unter mentioned, the last men, that's what they strive for is, again, satisfying their pleasures, believing that's going to free them up from pain and suffering. 
Instead of the Ubermensch, he recognizes that what is good is the pursuit of what is beautiful, intelligent, and, and physically strengthening. And that happiness, more often than not, doesn't even come into the picture. You're happy because you're engaged in what you know is going to make you smarter or stronger or more attractive to other people. That is the reward in and of itself. It's not the goal. It's the struggle. That's the thing. And so, yes, it comes at the expense of the bad. But, like I said, I think we have to be very, very careful then. We hold that mirror up to ourselves and we hold that mirror up to society. Because if we say, well, you're a beta male or you're the, one of the last men, you're one of these people, all you care about is pleasure and all you think you know, life is about is pursuing pleasure and satisfying desires. Well, if my desire is to crush you, to make you, to belittle you, to demean you, to condescend to you, to make you feel lesser than, well, then isn't that also me pursuing what gives me pleasure? That makes me happy. And now the Ubermensch has descended from the mountain. He has joined the Untermensch in tearing down those whom he finds disagreeable, who remind him that he has not achieved perfection, which is not the point of being an, an Ubermensch, a Superman. The purpose of becoming the Ubermensch is simply realizing manhood, realizing womanhood, and recognizing that our society is dominated by the last man in Untermensch, the underman. And as a consequence, all we're trying to do is become the man or the woman that God intends for us to be, that we are made to be. Everything that I do personally, speaking just for myself, everything that I do at the gym, at my gym, at home, at church, in my community, everything I do is a constant striving after that one goal, which is to become the man that God created me to be, to actually live, to create something today that wasn't here yesterday, like this podcast, like this conversation, to aspire to something greater than myself. And if along the way others say, hey, how can I jump on board? Awesome, that's fantastic. But I'm not going to say to someone, oh, sorry, fatty, you don't get to ride this car, we have a weight limit. No, it's, it's like saying... There, there's a 300-pound woman on the treadmill at the gym and they can't even run because of the amount of weight on their legs, on their joints. Are we going to mock that person for being at the gym, for being on the treadmill? Or are we going to say, hey, good job. Glad that you're here. Come, keep coming back. Are we going to encourage them to be better? Are we going to recognize they want to be better? They're fed up with being one of the last men. They're fed up with being Untermensch. Are we going to encourage them? Are we going to offer them encouragement? Are we going to try and motivate them? Or are we going to look at them and laugh and mock them and say, you don't belong here. You're doomed. Your fate is sealed. Well then, we're not, uh, we're not living by that higher morality. Then we're basically descending and allowing ourselves to be chained with that slave morality. The last man is a type of man but he hasn't achieved manhood. He's a man-child and has been infected by the slave morality of the Untermensch. That's why the last man and the Untermensch, they go hand in hand. They live together. They mingle. 
In fact, for Nietzsche, actually, and this is an interesting side note for me as a Christian, he actually blamed the Christian church for most of this in his generation and said that Christianity has been the most successful morality for creating the last man because it basically indoctrinates people into a slave morality, which I said, I actually alluded to that. The Apostle Paul refers to himself as a slave for Christ. But unfortunately, Nietzsche was a pastor's kid. And to be completely transparent, if I had grown up in the generation Nietzsche grew up with, grew up in, and I had been a part of the church that Nietzsche grew up in, I'd be an atheist too. Because the sermons that his father preached and the theology that he was taught, the faith that he was taught in the 19th century was what we call moralistic therapeutic deism. It was a complete and absolute bastardization of Christianity and Christian faith. And reading sermons from that era, reading theology from that era, reading Nietzsche's critique and Feuerbach's critique and others, in Kierkegaard, I would 100% would have apostatized had I lived in that generation and not known anything differently. I would have been an atheist myself. I would have been highly antagonistic, and I am antagonistic, toward that church and that, that, that dogma, that, that indoctrination in a false faith, a false reading of Scripture. And so I sympathize with Nietzsche, and I don't actually get uncomfortable with his critique of the Christian church and Christianity at that time. I actually agree with him. And I think he's got a good point, and I think it's a warning. I think God sent the church Nietzsche as a prophet to say, you need to pay attention to what you're preaching and teaching, because it's not actually what I want. This isn't, this isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. This isn't the forgiveness of sins and life and salvation. This is something completely other. This is actually the theology of the last man. And so it's not the church that made the last man, but rather the last man who invaded and infiltrated the church and made it the church that Nietzsche criticized and the Christianity that he loathed. So I think he just had the, he had it wrong. He had the horse in front of the cart or the cart before the horse. There we go. And so we can even see this in the present tense, that the church in America in particular, in my experience, and I'm just speaking for myself, is dominated by clergy who are man-children. They haven't achieved manhood. They've gone through no rite of passage. They're not men. They're untermensch. They're undermen. They're feminized men. They're beta males. And therefore, what they preach and what they teach is going to indoctrinate the next generation in the theology and the worldview of the last man, in the theology and ideology of the untermensch. And of course, that has led to the degradation and the destruction of the church, in the West in particular, at least as an institution. And I talked about this before, too, in relation to Bushido and Christianity, I think. And so that's kind of a breakdown, then, of the Ubermensch, the last man, and the Untermensch. And like I said, you can go watch Fight Club, go read the novel. It's a quick read. It's a good book. I love it. I love the movie to give you basically a cinematic breakdown of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and also it'll break down the Ubermensch, the last man, and the Untermensch for you. And the reason that I talked about this today, then, to wrap it all up with a nice bow, is because basically the warrior mindset is the mindset of the Ubermensch. And of course, then, those who don't understand Nietzsche, or those who read Nietzsche through the lens of the National Democratic Socialist Party in Germany, the Nazis, are going to accuse us of being Nazis. 
you know. I mean, people drop that term like they're throwing out, throwing away a, a, a gum wrapper nowadays. You disagree with me? You're a Nazi. You're a white supremacist. Whatever. You're a, you know, name it, right? Name the ist or the ism. You're it. But if someone just sat down and actually read Nietzsche and stopped listening to other people's interpretation, which is ironic because that's what I'm doing for you. So go read Nietzsche. <laughs> Don't take my word for it. You know, if you're curious or you're interested, go read them for yourself. Jordan Peterson does a great job of breaking down Nietzsche in some of his videos. But again, I think in the end, it's very important that if I talk about Nietzsche and I talk about the Ubermensch and the last man and the Untermensch and how the Nazis took and perverted Nietzsche's philosophy of the Ubermensch, and, and I talk about how they used it to justify the final solution or how it can be a solution to woke leftist neo-Marxist ideologies in the present tense, I think you owe it to yourself to run this stuff to ground, to basically make sure that I'm telling you the truth, that I'm interpreting this correctly, and I'm not just kind of reading into it what my presuppositions are telling me, but also then to strengthen your own knowledge base to increase your intellect so that understanding this then, you can not only apply it in your life, but also maybe help other people by walking them through this and saying, no, 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 no. The Ubermensch thing, the Nazi thing, that was a, that was a bastardization. That was a perversion of what Nietzsche was about in the spoke of the Arthustra. And yeah, there is some stuff in that that we have to recognize and, and basically explain and apologize for and say, yeah, in his context, this is what he was about. Do I agree with it? No, not entirely. Am I going to reinterpret this? Yeah, I am. <laughs> because that's my prerogative. He's dead. I'm alive. He can't argue with me. But I do think no matter what it is, if you, if you hear me talk about something or read something, if you hear others and it piques your interest or you find yourself agreeing because it affirms your presuppositions or your beliefs or your ideas, your personal philosophy, awesome. But I think we all owe it to ourselves then to think critically <clears throat> and ask the question, am I agreeing because it already affirms what I think? Or am I agreeing because, oh, okay, this has made me think about this in a different way, and now I can see, yeah, okay, I agree with that. That's true. Because, again, like Edward Norton's character in Fight Club, if we find that we are the last man, <coughs> or we find that we want to become the Ubermensch, we want to become the Brad Pitt character, how do we do that? And especially, how do we do that in a way that's not destructive to our society? Recognizing, though, that in order to achieve manhood, <coughs> excuse me, we do have to engage in self-annihilation. We do. Because in order to be reborn, so to speak, in order to escape the degeneracy and the dehumanization that the last man engages in, in the pursuit of pleasure, by indulging his cravings in order to escape and eliminate pain and suffering. In order to escape the slave morality of the Untermensch, we do have to take steps. We do have to blow up our presuppositions and our worldview. We do have to tune up our antenna and check our filters so that we're more discerning about what is true and false, right and wrong. We have to hold ourselves to a higher standard because we aspire to something greater than society actually expects us to aspire to. In fact, we live in a society that likes nothing better than to tear down those who aspire to something greater than themselves. 
And so I think this is important because those of us who embrace the warrior mindset, we're never satisfied with the status quo. We actually don't like beta males. We don't like what they represent. We don't like how they live, the choices they make, how they talk, how they dress, anything. We completely disagree with their entire ideology. We embrace facts over feelings, which means we are the villain to a lot of people today. So how do we navigate society? How do we interface with friends, family, community, coworkers, fellow students in such a way that we inspire them rather than turn them off to this ideology and recognize, yeah, we're going to have to have a conversation here because maybe the person I'm talking to sees themselves as being ugly and stupid and handicapped in some way. Maybe they've been raised to believe that. Maybe it's been indoctrinated in such a way that they can't see themselves in any other way. I mean, how many people do you meet uh, on a weekly basis who you can recognize just in the way they behave and talk, they don't believe they deserve to be loved unconditionally? Who see themselves as being ugly or dumb or somehow deficient because that has been basically fed to them steadily for most of their lives. They're surrounded by people that degrade them. And therefore, they can't think any other way. I had this conversation last Sunday after church where I was explaining how difficult it is to teach something to people who, when they were growing up, were never taught how to think. And so now that they don't know how to think, they don't know how to ask questions. They only know how to listen and parrot what is said to them by the authority standing up in front of the, the whiteboard at the, at the front of the room. But I don't want that. I want people to ask why. I want people to question what I'm saying. I want them to proof check me and say, well, where do you get that from? Where's that come from? Why did you say that? Why, do you, why did you say this word means that? Or why did you critique it in this way? I want them to ask why, but in order to do that, I actually have to teach them how to ask questions. Because it's a strange thing to, to realize that for all of your education, for all of your schooling, maybe you've never been taught how to think or be thoughtful. You've never been allowed to ask why. And so I think the most pregnant conversations, I think the most creative and positive and fruitful conversations and engagements come out of the why. Why do you do that? Why do you, why do you like sparring so much? Why do you fight? Why do you eat that way? Why do you live that way? Why did you make that choice? Why did you say that? What's that all about? Well, how did you do that? Can we explain ourselves? Can we apologize for our lives in such a way? And I don't mean apologize as in I'm sorry, but apologize as in form of defense. Apologia. How can we apologize in such a way so that people who think of us or see us as being villains or insane or, or whatever it might be, evil even, the devil, by the end of the conversation can say, oh, you know what? We actually have a lot more in common than I thought. We have a lot of the same goals, desires, dreams. How did, how did you accomplish that? How did you get there? I was completely wrong about you. Or I never thought about, this, about it this way before. And so I think it's very important that we not judge ourselves in such a way that we say, well, I'm beautiful and therefore she's ugly. Or I'm intelligent and he's dumb. Or, well, I'm strong and he's weak. And then I'm going to lord that over them. 
I'm going to use that as leverage to make, to elevate myself basically, because that's not actually how you attain a higher morality and escape slave morality. That's not how you become the Ubermensch. You don't become the Ubermensch by standing on other people's backs. You become the Ubermensch by climbing the mountain and standing on the peak. You become the Ubermensch by setting goals for yourself and smashing them. You become the Ubermensch by annihilating the person that you were yesterday, the weaker person, the less intelligent and knowledgeable person, the ugly, stupid, selfish, greedy person that you were yesterday. And by abandoning the slave morality, by leaving the plantation, so to speak, of your own mental slavery, maybe it's physical and emotional slavery, maybe it's social slavery. And of course, in a society that is dominated by the untermensch, the beta males, the last men, this is going to be difficult because there's going to be a sea, a stadium of voices shouting you down, telling you you're a demon, you're evil, you're wrong. <coughs> you're this, you're that. But do we then descend and join them and become like them in order to make our point? No, of course not. We enslave ourselves again if we do that. We just keep on moving forward. We recognize that the obstacle is the way and only through it, through the pain, through the suffering, through the hardship, through the heartache, will we grow and become stronger and become the women and the men that God made us to be. So that's all I got today. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. I hope this helps. I hope this proves useful to you. And like I say, I don't care if you agree with me or disagree with me. I just want to get you to think. Think about your presuppositions. Think about the way you see yourself in the world. Think about how you interface and engage with others and these kinds of topics. And if you're interested in this stuff, go read Nietzsche. Go listen to Jordan P. Go find podcasts that break this stuff down. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and learn for yourself whether or not this is for you and if it helps contribute to your life and the choices that you make in your life. Otherwise, I will talk to you Sunday as we continue with Takemi Sasamori's Bushido and Christianity. All right. Love you. See you later, weirdos. Peace.